I'm gutted. Just this afternoon came the news that Roger Whittaker has died. I love this singer and always have. Roger Whittaker with a voice like no other. His baritone singing voice, trademark whistling. Born in Nairobi, sold nearly 50 million records worldwide. Greatest hits include this one here, New World and Durham Town. Are you familiar with Roger Whittaker and Nicky Bazant? Look, I'm familiar, yeah. It's not, but nothing I, it's more. Not, I'm not a big fan in the way that you are. Clearly. Um, no, but I will say, we don't have enough whistling now in music, yeah, do precisely we? Precisely, David yeah. Farrah. Yeah, I have to confess, uh, he was unknown to me. Um, he, he, what, you didn't know him? No. Wow. I feel wow. Let, I'm letting the Far side out. down. <laughs> well, that's kind of weird, but anyway, all right, well, I'm sad. Um, I'll be sad for you, Roger. There you go. So for the fans, Roger Whitaker died today. Um, now, by the way, uh, just um, a traffic update. Uh, uh, the, York, the crash in Auckland Harbour Bridge has been moved, clear of all lanes, allow extra time for delays in the area to ease. And just spotted a Suzuki Swift on the southern motorway towing a heavily loaded trailer. Madness. Um, so hopefully someone will spot that and uh, pull it to one side. That's very strange. Uh, and wonderful close, Mike. The closing scene in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when the chief escapes and runs off into the night. What a fantastic film. Jack Nicholson at his very best. Have you seen that film? No, I have probably seen it. I can't remember that. Yeah. No. Um, Nicky Bazant and David Farrow joining me today. The 19th of September marks an historic day. This time, 130 years ago, the act that gave women the right to vote in New Zealand was being signed. This would make us the first self-governing country to change voting laws to reflect the times. The women's suffrage movement is a milestone in our nation's history, so I guess we wanted to mark today's anniversary by speaking with Katie Pickles, a professor of history at the University of Canterbury. Professor Pickles, welcome. Sure, Wallace. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on, Katie. So why is it important that we don't forget the significant significance of this day? Because women's suffrage all throughout the world is seen as really the, the major indicator of women's progress in society, of women becoming equal in society, or what we call feminism, women becoming equal with men in society. So it's, it's the major indicator we have. If we look back, if we were there today, 130 years ago, what would we be seeing? Was it a big decision? Was it a controversial decision? Would there be a, would there have been protests? Would there have been uproar? Would there have been dissent? The, oh, not like there was later on in other parts of the world. Mm. I think often uh, one of my pet peeves is how people go around going, votes for women and um, putting on sashes that suffragettes wore in Britain two decades later, and they think of Mary Poppins and Sister Suffragette. <laughs> We've seen that. And it, it wasn't like that here. It was yeah. hard work and slog. But there were there were a lot of very angry people, the the publicans and uh, the liquor lobby, and it was very closely fought. It was political uh, intrigue at its highest level, level really, and it was coming from the men who were who had to pass it inside of Parliament, and it was the third attempt uh, mm. at it, and it only just went through. And then, it, but it was the women outside of in the home 
largely, who were writing letters and lobbying their politicians and a little bit of speaking in public. Uh, but by and large, it, it was sort of this very orderly, intriguing political process. Amazing history, Nikki. Eh? I am so proud of us as a as a nation, as a woman. Uh, at fun fact, in 1982, I I won the uh, form two speech competition at St Joseph's Primary with a speech about Kate Shepherd and the suffrage movement. So I've always had a very, very cool. tender. Feeling towards Kate Shepherd, and I think she's amazing. She got, you know, she got a quarter of the women, quarter of the European women in New Zealand to sign that petition. I mean, that's if you think about that, that's incredible. Yes. It was just real grassroots work, right? Katie? Yes, yeah, really, really hard work, grassroots work, going door to door or going to the meetings where women happen to be, and yeah, getting those signatures, putting them all on, and yeah, and pasting it together, <laughs> the actual physical, and keeping on going. Uh, that was the culmination of the, yeah, on the third attempt. So, yeah, and especially the South Island, uh, Dunedin, Christchurch are the, are the real sort of hotbeds, Dunedin per capita, and Invercargill, not to forget Invercargill, they have a really yeah. high per capita signing of the petition. Yeah, interesting. Why do you think not many men signed at that time? Because it was just a handful, right? There are some on there, because, yeah, they're not looking for the men. It really is this bifurcated sexes, isn't it? There's a, there's a binary division between them. And, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of supportive men, though, absolutely, aren't there? I mean, it's men who have to pass it in Parliament, mm. and it's the husbands who who are supporting the women with it. So, yeah, but the idea is this is this is women who are going to sign it. It's a women's petition right. outside of their sphere, in their sphere, from mm. their sphere in private. David. Men are in public. Yeah, look, I agree on the significance of it because I don't think it's just about voting. I think it was the beginning of the end of seeing women as either chattels, property, second-class citizens. I mean, if you go back enough, and sadly there's still a few countries today where women are regarded as, as the property of their husbands. In Roman times, the paterfamilias could actually kill a member of their family legally, etc. So I think that getting the suffrage was that beginning of changing how society saw women. And it is also just worth reminding that Kate Shepard wasn't just a campaigner for universal suffrage, but also for equal suffrage, that uh, men and women get the same vote. There's none of this, you know, your vote will only count for half as much as someone else too. Uh, so, yeah, it, 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 yeah, 130 years ago isn't that long when you think of history. That, that you know, I think there's probably a generation of people who can imagine that relatively recently, you know, half the adult population weren't allowed to vote. Mm, Katie? Yes, yeah, I absolutely agree with what you're saying there because it's, it symbolises uh, that, that women are a human being and, and they've become equal with men because before they're not and that's legislated right back through lots of societies and time. And when um, women's suffrage was one of a number of reforms that were all about modernity, I think as we call it, and um, a new humanity, equal pay, prevention of violence uh, against women, economic independence, like we're saying, old age pensions for everybody, uh, reform of marriage, divorce, health, education, peace, justice. There were a whole raft, weren't there, of reforms that the Liberals are going to bring in through the 1890s, and suffrage can be seen in the context of a part of that, the advancement of society that um, was very much a new world endeavour. 
But here's the deal as well. I want to raise this. You raised it um, actually in a piece um, a few years ago that we were the first in the world to grant women the vote. But get this. It took 26 mm. years to let women stand for parliament, way after some other countries. That's an incredible yeah. lag. How, why was that? Well, there's, there's lots of arguments around that in literature. Oh. But you see, when we, got, when we passed the vote in 1893, it only just went through. And so to make sure it went through, they dropped, agreed mm. to drop that women would have the right to stand for parliament as well because they thought that would be too much and it wouldn't go through. So the moment was missed. That would have been the moment to get it through, and we would have been so advanced and radical and that women could um, stand for Parliament and sit there too. But the argument is that New Zealand was really quite a sexist place and that um, it had different um, roles for women, colonial society, women in the home, and men in, you know, in public, such as Parliament. And it was thought that women wouldn't want to stand for Parliament. And... It, and the position of getting the vote was based on women's maternal and homely role. So it wasn't suggesting that women should go out and be like men or become men. It was said their difference, let each of the sexes sort of remain in their separate role. That was kind of the discourse of the time. And afterwards, um, yeah, it, things lagged. People were exhausted. The politicians who'd been sort of supportive, a few of them carried on trying to get... Uh, there was a big campaign here for years to get uh, women the right to stand for Parliament, but uh, it took World War One to come along for that, really, to women to prove themselves. And Nikki, so, yeah, the tide went out. Then 1919, there you go. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I, think, I think those gender roles have lingered, haven't they? They're not completely gone, that's for sure. Very interesting. Yeah. Hey, no, well, lovely to have you on, Professor Pickles. Kia ora, thank you. Uh, that's uh, Katie Pickles, Professor of History at uh, University of Canterbury. Um, Claire says, Kia ora, Wallace, I'm one of Flora Orbell's descendants, first woman, Ma- uh, first Māori woman suffragette. They did an amazing job. Mm, Chairs amazing. in Kate Shepherd's house in Christchurch, named after each suffragette, suffragette excuse me, uh, and it's worth... A visit. You know what we need, actually, is a better memorial to the suffrage movement. We don't have one, really. There's like a wall in Christchurch or something, right? And the other, in fact, just on the weekend, I walk, we walked up the steps in, um, in Lawn Street in Auckland where there's a sort of a very tatty and not very nicely designed kind of mural of the suffragettes. But really, we should have amazing kind of memorial statues. I think you've raised something. 130 years today... You've raised a really important point. Where's Where our, is the memorial? Where's the major is, statue? Is there a Where, statue in Wellington? I, I know there's a street, Kate Shepherd Place. Yeah. For some reason, I'm sure somewhere you there see, is the a statue. You see, the fact that we don't know. No, yeah. We should it know. It means a lot, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you agree? We might come back to that, actually. Uh, get a get a well-known artist design, a major memorial, because it is uh, significant, is it? Uh, 15 to 5, uh, the panel. Oh, yes, my husband met Roger Whittaker in the Clinton Fish and Chip Shop nearly 40 years ago. He's still a big <laughs> fan, and wow. we have three of his records. I'm just so sad that Roger Whittaker died. I th- his I mean, music lives forever, yeah, though, Wallace. I, I, guess it, I guess it does. It's 14 away from 5 to this. Uh, David Farrer and Nikki Byzantine. The decision to demolish an historical building in Ashburton in favour of a car park 
has riled up a local heritage group. The building is located on Havelock Street, constructed in 1936, and Historic Places Mid-Canterbury has said it could have been saved with a bit more foresight. In response, Council Chief Executive Hamish Riach said it was originally purchased with a new office space in mind to accompany a new library and civic centre. It was later decided a car park would take its place instead. With us, Historic Places Mid-Canterbury Deputy Chairperson Nigel Gilkerson. Welcome, Nigel. Kia ora, Wallace. Thanks oh, for having me on the panel. Pleasure. Today. All right, here we go again. What price heritage? When did you find out about the demo? Well, we only found out about it through a, a, a local um, article that was in the local paper. Uh, and it was actually, um, it came up because it was actually decided on and as a public excluded meeting by the council, uh, the local journalist did some digging about car parking and found out that this building was going to be demolished. It's actually right behind the Civic Centre, which is still under construction. Uh, and our question was really around why was not, not this not planned into the uh, design of the Civic Centre? Uh, why are they demolishing a, a, a you know, perfectly usable building um, to put a surface-level car park? Well, we all need we all need good car park spaces. Um, is this heritage building that important? No, it's not actually. And for, for me, it's not solely about the heritage argument. That's part, partly to do with it. But it's not actually a listed heritage building. For me, it's about sort of sustainability, uh, and actually, it's about wastage uh, and 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 there are other spaces within in fact there's plenty of car parking in Nashburton um, there are even more car parks to be planned uh, as part of this we've just been through a CBD uh, regeneration which has uh, sort of analyzed all of the car parking and again I wonder why this wasn't sort of considered as part of this it, it seems like a, a lack of planning a lack of foresight which has led to uh, to this decision uh, and it's been done without any sort of public consultation um, or uh, you know, discussion with with the public about this. It's, it, it's well, I mean, it's like for me, it's like you know, buying a car just because you want the tyres and then scrapping the rest. It's huh. just so wasteful. Okay, hey Nigel, can you just um, uh, stand to the left of the right one meter so we can get a clearer signal there? Um, oh, so this is the Cavendish Chambers, David Farrer, uh, built in nineteen thirty six for the Cavendish Club to be demolished for a car park. Your thoughts? I'd be interested. Just you said it wasn't heritage protected. Which body does make decisions on who gets heritage protection? Do, do the council have a role in that, or is it purely uh, the the national heritage body? Heritage New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Actually, both of them have a role in New Zealand uh, of listing, uh, protecting heritage buildings. So it's a sort of a slightly convoluted system. So there is the district plan, which lists locally uh, heritage buildings that are significant. But then on top of that, there's a national sort of register, uh, which is which is governed by Heritage New Zealand. Now, this building is, is on neither of those lists. Um, but when we discovered a, uh, that it was going to be demolished, um, we did some research on the building. Um, and it's quite interesting, you know, the, the, the heritage uh, of it. For me, it, it actually... Um, it is a potential candidate to become a listed building okay. within, the near, within the near future. All right, Nikki. Yeah, this makes me quite sad. It's a, quite a handsome 
building, I think it's worth preserving. I'm, I'm a big fan of heritage buildings. I live in a heritage building, um, listed, thank goodness. But I'm, I'm wondering, is, is there just a, an abundance of heritage buildings in Ashburton so that this one is unimportant, or what's the, what's the thinking? <laughs> Not at all. In fact, the complete opposite. Huh. We've lost so many, so many heritage buildings uh, in Ashburton. And one of the biggest ones we lost in about 2012 was the local railway station, uh, which was sold off. And actually a really sort of short-sighted decision, actually, because, you know, the potential for, for passenger rail to come back, now we don't have a station. And it was it was just a timber building. It would have been re- relatively easy to, uh, to to strengthen and refurbish. Do you think, uh, can what, I just jump in, Nigel, because we had a, a heritage um, a person on the show about two years ago. He said, compared to overseas people, New Zealanders, do not, Kiwis don't give us stuff about local heritage. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I would. I mean, there is certainly a degree of apathy when it comes to heritage buildings, and uh, there is an attitude that you know that uh, um, these buildings are uh, uh, can be just demolished and, and replaced. But but actually, there's a sort of global movement in architecture which has happened quite re- recently, which is really about adaptive reuse as first choice, and that's not just for heritage buildings. It's actually tied to the whole environmental sustainability argument in that actually the embodied carbon which is in these buildings has value. By pulling them down and rebuilding them on the same footprint, you're, uh, you're actually just doubling that loss of carbon yeah. plus all the new materials that come into it. Nigel, nice to have you on the programme. And uh, look, if um, before it goes, before it gets bulldozed, go and check it out. It's quite, as, as Nikki says, it's quite a handsome building. Um, but uh, that's the case there. That's Historic Places Mid Canterbury Deputy Chairperson Nigel Gilkerson. You are with the panel. Pleasure to have your company, David Farrar. Nikki Bazant today, and quite a few people riled up that we don't have a proper memorial for Kate Shepherd. But someone says there is a bust of Kate Shepherd inside Parliament, stuck in an alcove under the staircase. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, Lewis says the original petition from the women's suffrage movement is housed in a museum near Parliament. Parliament, it's called Hetohu. That in itself is a great memorial to the movement. And if you haven't been there, go and check it out. Thanks for the heads up. Eight away from five, the panel. Turning product, in product waste rather, into something useful to round out the show today. Do you know what grape mark is? The stems, skins and seeds left over from winemaking. And by all accounts, this waste that we all chuck out, or they chuck out, offers valuable opportunities for food, paper, pharmaceutical products and more. It's a $9.8 million project led by the University of Auckland, money awarded by the Ministry of Business Innovation and Employment's Endeavour Fund. With us, Professor Paul Kilmartin, an expert in the wine chemistry uh, sector and will lead the research programme. Professor Kilmartin, welcome. Good good afternoon. Hello. It's fascinating. Tell us a little more about Grape Mark. Well, look, it's, 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 it's what's left over at the end of the winemaking process, and it has been a growing problem for our wine regions. Some of it can go back uh, as, as compost or something uh, onto, onto the vines, but a lot of it ends up in landfill and can leach into waterways. So we've got a problem. It's costly to get rid of. We're looking for solutions that may add value by, by extracting good things out of that waste. And so turning a waste into a potentially high-value product, what are some of the products that you may be focusing on? 
Yeah, a range of things, some of which we've had a look at already. So already, I mean, you can uh, buy grapeseed oil from the supermarket. Uh, Already they they remove some of the wine acids that winemakers can reuse. And if there's uh, leftover sugars, you can ferment them into industrial alcohol. But a lot of the rest is untouched. So grapeseed protein, for example, which could go into uh, food as a plant protein. Uh, Some of the tannin polyphenols were interested for antioxidant properties. And some of the leftover pulp and lignin can go into paper making or or other products of that sort. (laughs) It's amazing, Nikki, isn't it? Yeah, this is the first I've heard of this, actually. That's why I'm talking about it. It sounds like something, do you need to get to a certain scale to make this work? Well, you do. We'll be starting at the lab scale and, and then moving up to the pilot scale with it. But you've got to evaluate what are the economics of scaling up. Is somebody prepared to build a biorefinery in Marlborough, for example, or the Hawke's Bay mm. to process this at scale and, mm. and generate a lot of, lot of product as a result? David, I'm very interested that if you're successful, this could have huge international interest in it. What are the intellectual property arrangements around this and that would other countries just be able to look at what we've done in New Zealand and say we'll do that or will some of the methods uh, have some protection so that it might actually be a service or knowledge that, that has commercial value? Oh, very much like, like any technologies and processes we develop, you look at IP protection so that if, if, if a good process, new process is developed, yeah, it can be applied firstly in New Zealand, of course, but uh, yeah, yeah, we, we, we gain benefit from New Zealand if, if other countries and companies take it up to use overseas. Yeah, eliminating a primary industry waste stream, I guess, is the ultimate, right, Paul? Is this what you call, what other people call, the circular economy? Very much directed to that, because there's things we're putting in all the time into horticulture. Take phosphorus, for example. We're largely sourcing that from rock phosphate still. Uh, If we can regenerate some of that phosphorus that's coming through in the Great Mark and and put it to good use, uh, all the better. See, this is what New Zealand needs to focus on, isn't it, Nikki? This is this is innovation at its finest. You've got this rubbish grape mark. Who knew you could use it for pharmaceutical products and more? Yeah, that's really clever. I wonder if it sort of reminds me a little bit of the hemp industry in a way because they use hemp seeds and you know your hemp they use for mm. buildings and food and everything, clothes, all that kind of stuff. So it seems like it's reasonably versatile. So what's what's next, Paul? What's the uh, what's the next? You got the funding, the nine point eight million. What's next? Well, we we get the whole team going. We've all done a little bit of work on this already. Uh, Cyan is one of our main partners. They'll get the paper making process even further developed. Wow. Uh, people, at, people at the other centres will, will work on the extractions a lot at first and then make sure our processes are environmental friendly. We don't want to use so much energy and, and, and toxic chemicals to actually uh, produce things from it that it's bad for the environment. So we'll keep a really close eye on that so-called life cycle analysis as well. Lovely to have you on the programme. It's really exciting stuff, Professor Kilmartin. Kia ora. Uh, Paul's an expert in the wine industry uh, You're really interested Have to come back to the statue That we need a proper big statue uh, Someone said there is a statue Of Kate Shepherd. It's in England <laughs> Oh my gosh Oh that's terrible We need to fix this We've got to fix it Should we, we'll, we'll have to talk about this um, I see that Sue Kedgley has uh, 
texted in saying that um, we need to sort this out, a proper one. There's a memorial to the woman's suffrage next to the Auckland Art Gallery. It's a yeah. mural made with tiles. That's Look the it up. I'm talking but about. You don't like it's it, awful. Do you? It's really well. That's it's debatable. Some might nice. like it. All right. Anyway, thanks for your company. David Farrow, Nicky Bazant this afternoon. A big thanks to Sam Hollis, the producer. I'm Wallace Chapman. Back tomorrow, 3.45. Checkpoint with Lisa Owen is next.